We are continuing through the book of Luke. We are in Luke chapter 12 now. I think we've been in Luke over, surely over a year. Who knows, we may be in Luke another year. It's, uh, we still have a number of chapters to go. It is a rich and fruitful study. One of the great things about going through a book, a verse at a time, starting at chapter 1 and going all the way to the end, is that you end up covering every verse in the book. You cover all the passages. There may be passages you might be inclined to skip over. There may be topics or things that you might look at and go, well, I don't know if I want to talk about that this morning. And so you just pick something you do want to talk about. Well, uh, we're not going to do that. Um, We're going to go through every passage. This morning we're going to talk, and what Jesus is going to share with his disciples is a mission statement. Jesus is going to talk about why he came. Now, it's an interesting question if you ask folks, so why did Jesus come? You might get a variety of answers. Even among Christians, you may get a variety of answers. Uh, We tend to think that, well, Jesus came to uh, maybe be a good example to us, to show what it's like to be um, a good person. Uh, You may get some along the lines of what it is to be selfless or how to truly love our neighbor. Uh, Jesus came so that he could die so everyone could go to heaven. Um, Even in Christian circles, we may give an an answer that, well, Jesus came as the Prince of Peace. Uh, Jesus is oftentimes portrayed as a person who is peaceful, almost to the point of being uh, peace, love, and harmony, like that's the only message Jesus has, somewhat idealistic, not, not really practical as those things go, but, you know, it's Jesus. So, you know, nice of Jesus to get up and talk about peace, love, and harmony. The rest of us have to live in the you know, real world. But, you know, Jesus kind of walked around almost like he wasn't really practical. Um, Christmas. The world loves Christmas. Even the world loves Christmas. Why? Well, we've got a a little baby who is going to come and talk about peace, love, and happiness. I mean, who can't be for peace, love, and happiness, right? Um, And, of course, Jesus clearly was the Prince of Peace. That's undeniable. He came as the Prince of Peace. Um, When the angels announced his birth, it's glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among men of goodwill. Jesus, during his ministry, would often say to people, uh, peace. Mark gives an example. Mark 5, he said to a a woman who has just been healed, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your afflictions. The Jews, when they thought about their Messiah and, and the Messiah coming, they certainly anticipated that the Messiah would come and bring peace. That's what they expected. There's a reason why they expected that. That's a number of examples in the Old Testament. I'll read you just a few. Uh, Isaiah 9, 6, again, relating to the birth of Jesus. For unto us a child will be born, and a son will be given, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. So, if you're thinking about the Messiah coming, this is who you're looking for, the Prince of Peace. Zechariah 9. 9 and 10, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble, mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, 
the foal of a donkey. Here's what will happen. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem and the bow of war will be cut off. And he will speak peace to the nations and his dominion will be from sea to sea and the rivers to the ends of the earth. Isaiah, that great passage in Isaiah 11:9. the lion will lay down with the lamb and the wolf will lay down with the lamb and the children will play around the snake's den, right? It'll all be peace and love and harmony. Um, when Jesus sent his disciples out, he said to them, when you go out, Here's what I want you to do. If the house is worthy, give it your blessing of peace. If it's not worthy, take back your blessing of peace. Um, We, of course, see Jesus as the one who came to ultimately give us peace with God. This is reconciliation. We are given the ministry of reconciliation. Jesus went out to reconcile all things unto himself, Colossians tells us. And he made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him... I say, whether things in heaven or things on earth. This is exactly who Jesus is. This is one of the reasons why he came. It is one of the reasons, clearly one of the reasons Jesus came. So that we can be reconciled to God, reconciled to one another, ambassadors of Christ, sending out the message of reconciliation and the message of peace. But that did not come just through peace, love, and harmony. When Jesus came here and declared this message of peace, they, just in case you hadn't noticed, hated him. And they proceeded to go out, and though Jesus loved them, they did not love him back. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. He preached to them peace, they... They did not want to hear about the message of peace. And we can have peace with God, but in order to get the title Prince of Peace, Jesus, the coronation crown that he got was not a crown of lilies or a crown of daisies or this nice little crown. What he got was a crown of thorns. That was the crown he got. And... He had to go through death on the cross in order to bring us peace with God. So yes, he does offer us peace, but the price of that was very, very high. And he will say in today's passage, and we'll get to it in just a moment, he will say to them in today's passage, do you suppose that I came to grant peace on the earth? I tell you, I just want to give you a minute to think about that. What, what, what do you suppose he told them? And if you're one of the disciples and you're thinking, well, wait a minute, we are familiar. All those Old Testament passages and many others that I just read to you, they knew all of those. And they were certain Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah. So we're not sure exactly how the dots all connect here. But any minute now, Jesus, somehow or another, is going to, at least, if nothing else, liberate the nation Israel from the oppressive Romans and then we're going to sit on 12 thrones and all right maybe we don't rule the whole world although I think we do but surely anyway we're at least going to rule Israel I mean that's going to happen any minute now the disciples are convinced of it 
And once that happens, well, there'll be peace, love, and harmony because, well, that's what the Messiah came for, right? So when he says to them, do you suppose I came to grant peace on the earth? I think their answer would have been, well, yeah, why else did you come? And Jesus says, I tell you, no. But rather, division. Now, if you're surprised to hear that, if you're like, what? What? Yeah, this is Luke chapter 12, verse 51. We're in Luke chapter 12. Jesus said, you think, do you suppose? And talking, of course, to his disciples who, in fact, did suppose. Yes, actually, they did suppose that you came to bring peace on the earth. Isn't that why you came? Uh, No. No, actually, I came to bring division. The Jews, as a nation, were astounded at this. They did not expect their Messiah to come back like this. This this is not how this was supposed to work, which, by the way, would be one of the reasons why they rejected him as their Messiah. And, of course, Jesus came and preached to them the coming of the kingdom. It was a completely legitimate offer of the kingdom. Had they repented, we don't know for sure, of course, since they didn't, but had they repented, chances are quite likely that the Romans would have crucified Jesus anyway, And he would have come back in three days, risen from the dead, and then we'd have gone right into the millennium. Of course, we know that didn't happen, and God knew that wasn't going to happen. Jesus is the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world. If you're going to have sentient beings with free will, and you're going to actually allow them to make up their mind, apparently, by all biblical account here, the only way you're going to get that to happen is you actually have to let people make Bad choices, which, by the way, we do. And so God knew before he ever created the heavens and the earth how this was all going to go. He made it anyway. And part of the plan was that when we sinned, and we did, Jesus would come and he would redeem us. And he knew that. He knew that he would arrive and he would spend his life knowing this was coming. That's why he came. One of the reasons he came. The fact that they knew this was going to happen in no way alleviates the nation for what they did. I mean, Jesus said to Peter, you will deny me three times. Peter's like, no, I won't. Uh, Yeah, yeah, you will. And what do you know? Peter denied him three times. Jesus warned Judas multiple times. Yeah, the son of man is going to be betrayed, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Judas heard all that. Betrayed him anyway. The nation was given a legitimate offer of the kingdom. Yes, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And if you will repent as a nation, it could be yours. They, of course, don't repent as a nation, which God knew they wouldn't. But that doesn't make the offer any less legitimate. And it makes them completely guilty. Sodom will rise up in judgment on this nation. The queen of the south will come at the day of judgment and condemned them because she repented at, the, at hearing Solomon and Jesus is greater than Solomon. Jesus says, John 15, 22, if I had not come and spoken to them, well, they wouldn't have had sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Jesus came and offered them the kingdom. They didn't take it. Isaiah will speak to his group of people in his generation. And God says to him, I'm going to send you, Isaiah, 
who will go and who, who will go for us? And Isaiah says, here, my Lord, send me. And God says, okay, I'll send you. But let me tell you about the ministry you're going to have, Isaiah. Isaiah 6, God says, go and tell this people, keep on listening, but not perceive. Keep on looking, but not understanding. Isaiah, I'm going to send you to the nation of Israel, and you're going to talk to them, but they're going to have eyes, and they're not going to see, and they're going to have ears, and they're not going to hear. This is your ministry, Isaiah, so sorry to tell you. You're going to get to go and talk to a bunch of people who aren't going to pay any attention to you. And so there is a moment when God is done with the people and a nation. There comes a moment when the message is preached and the truth is taught and the miracles are done and the signs are there and everyone has an opportunity to hear it and to make up their mind. But the moment eventually comes where God is like, okay, I'm done. By the time Isaiah shows up, God is looking at the nation of Israel. It's like, I'll send you Isaiah and he will speak to you, but you won't, you won't repent. Jesus will say this same thing. In our gospel, Luke chapter 8 is when this will occur. Jesus will speak and he'll speak plainly. And then the moment comes in Luke chapter 8 when he starts speaking to them in parables. And they will come to him, his disciples will come and say, why are you speaking in parables? I mean, just in case you hadn't noticed, no one understands these things. I mean, you're up and you're still talking and you're still teaching and you're still saying stuff, but... No one really gets what you're saying anymore. I mean, in fact, would you please explain these parables to us? Because we don't really get them either. And here's what Jesus replies to them in Luke 8.10. He says to them, to you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God. But to the rest, it's in parables. So that seeing, they may not see. And hearing, they may not understand. Just like Isaiah. Why? Because the moment came that Jesus was done. It's like he came, he spoke, he sent his disciples to speak, they preached, the truth was given, and then the moment came where you're just not listening anymore. You just aren't hearing it anymore. And so at that point, a dividing line is put down. One of the reasons Jesus came was to make a dividing line. Now, he came for other reasons as well, right? You can read any number of, as it were, mission statements, any number of reasons why Jesus arise. Matthew 5, 17. He says, don't think I came to abolish the law and the prophets. I didn't come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. One of the reasons Jesus came was to fulfill the law and the prophets. He says in Luke 5, I have not come to call righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus came to call sinners to repentance. Luke 19.10, which we haven't got to yet, but he says, I have come to seek and to save those who are lost. John 6.38, I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. John 10.10, the thief comes to destroy. Jesus says, I have come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. Of course, it comes time for the Gethsemane moment where he's in there praying and he will pray and say oh my father my soul is troubled but what shall I say save me from this hour for this purpose I have come for this hour Jesus came to die for us John 12 he says I came as a light unto the world so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness 
Pilate will talk to him and say, are you a king? And he says, you say correctly that I am a king. For this I was born, and for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. And everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. So Jesus comes for a number of reasons. He comes to bring the truth. He comes to die for our sins. He comes to be a light into the dark world. There's a whole lot of reasons why Jesus came, but there's one particular reason that we're going to look at in depth this morning as to why he came. And that is, he didn't come to bring peace on this earth. He came to bring division. The disciples, I think they hear this and they're thinking, you better come up with a little more explanation than this. I, I think the disciples are floored when they hear Jesus say this. Of course, the disciples are kind of in the dark about all kinds of things. You'll recall the Emmaus Road after he's already died, and the disciples are walking along, and he comes up. He says, what are you guys so sad about? Oh, we thought for sure Jesus was the Messiah. Now he's gone off and died. It's like we just, how could this possibly be? And, of course, he then goes through and explains it all. So they're kind of in the dark about all kinds of stuff. And one of the things they're in the dark about is that you're not supposed to come and bring conflict. I mean, remember, there's the, the passage where he says, don't you understand the Pharisees are offended by what you said? You just called them a bunch of hypocrites. Uh, yep, Jesus is well aware of that because they are a bunch of hypocrites and they need to be told that. So let's look at the passage in front of us now. Luke chapter 12, verse 49. He looks at his disciples. He's, he's, you know, he's having a discussion with them all through chapter 12. And there's lots of people there, but he's speaking specifically to his disciples. And he's talking to them about how to be a good disciple. And we're not going to review all that, but it, this is in that discussion. So he says to them in verse 49, I have come to cast fire upon the earth and how I wish it were already kindled. So here we have another, by the way, clear purpose statement. I have come to cast fire on the earth. Now, the idea of fire being cast on the earth is not unfamiliar to the disciples. It's not unfamiliar to the nation of Israel. They understood what it meant it's great judgment i have come to cast judgment on the earth uh, malachi 4 1 for behold the day is coming burning like a furnace and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff and the day that is coming will set them ablaze says the lord of hosts so that it will leave neither root nor branch so when they hear that god is going to be casting fire out of heaven onto the earth they're like yeah, go get those wicked folks. That's right. God is going to judge all the wicked nations. Of course, he's not going to judge us. We're the children of Abraham. I mean, after all, we are going to see the blessings. You know, the lion laying down with the lamb. I mean, that's how that, that's not directed at us, is it? Uh, yeah, actually, it is. And if they had read their Old Testament, they could have seen it. Jeremiah 5, 14. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, because you have spoken this word, behold, I am making my words in your mouth fire. And this people would, and it will consume them. And by the way, Jeremiah is prophesying at the same time as Isaiah. Is my word, is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer which shatters the rock? God's word comes like fire. 
Isaiah, continuing later in the book, Behold, the Lord will come in fire and his chariots like a whirlwind to render his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. Again, Malachi, who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? He's like refiner's fire and fuller's soap. He will sit as a smelter and purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver so that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. The fire is coming. Now, fire does two things. It does consume, but it also refines. And if they'd have paid any attention at all to the preaching of John, the baptizer, John got up there and said to them, look, you think I'm the Messiah? I'm not the Messiah. That's that, I'm not that guy, but I'll tell you this, the axe is already laid to the root of the trees, and every tree that does not bear fruit is going to be cut down and thrown into the fire. The one who is coming, his winnowing fork is in his hand to thoroughly clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. When the Messiah comes, John says, by the way, whose shoelaces I am unworthy to even untie, he's going to gather in the wheat and he's going to burn the chaff. This is a very clear message of division. There's going to be the wheat and there's going to be the chaff. And he's going to make a clear distinction. So when Jesus says, I have come to cast fire upon the earth and how I wish it were already kindled. Well, this is the fire of judgment. Israel is going to be judged. And when he says how I wish it were already kindled, we're going to see in just a minute, because he's going to talk about baptism as well. What he's talking about is his death. He is going to die. And when he dies, judgment is going to be on the nation. They're going to have one last chance to really make up their mind. He's going to die. He's going to resurrect. Now as a nation, they're going to get to decide, do we accept our Messiah or not? And of course, we know that some, there will be some who will repent and be saved. But again, as a whole, the leaders and the majority of the nation will not repent. And in fact, the fire will fall. And by 70 AD, the life of most of the people who were around when Jesus is crucified, by 70 AD, the Romans will in fact show up. They will completely decimate the place. They will drag Herod's temple off the Temple Mount down into the Kidron Valley. There'll be rumors that the Jews have buried massive amounts of gold under the foundation stones of the temple. And so they'll haul the whole thing right off and make what we see now, this flat Temple Mount, because the temple's gone. No more sacrifices. They haven't made sacrifices since 70 AD. To this very day, there's, there's only one temple. And that's the only place you should make sacrifices. Of course, they don't have a temple. And that's because Jesus sent down the fire of judgment upon them. This is exactly what happened to them. And so, here they are. They were tested And they did not pass the test. A few folks made it. Some of the Jews repented. But on the whole, not. And so the refining fire went through that nation. And the fire of God continues. It's not like it's gone out. 
we too will face the same judgment. Paul writes about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Everyone's works will be brought to judgment and the fire will come on them. And hopefully when it's all done, it's not all wood, hay, and stubble. Hopefully we didn't waste our whole lives down here. And then we end up with some gold and silver and precious stones. We sure hope so. And that's the fire of the judgment of God. It, it refines. It will refine us. By the way, this last week was probably a week of refinement. Hopefully, as this week went by, you find yourself continuing to trust God and to see him faithful. So when Jesus comes here and he speaks to them, he said, I've, I'm going to bring fire on the earth. Judgment is going to come. As I continue, as my ministry gets done here, you're going to watch the line be drawn brighter and brighter, and people are going to be required to stand on one side of it or the other. You're not going to have the opportunity to simply say, if you're paying any attention at all, oh, Jesus was a good teacher. I don't, I don't know that he was really God. Well, if you think that, that's because you haven't paid attention to what Jesus actually said. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes unto the Father but by me. You believe in God, believe also in me. Just think of the audacity of making that statement. That is not a person who is simply a good teacher. That is someone who is making a clear claim to deity. In fact, what did they crucify him for? Thou being a man, makest thyself God, which is blasphemy. Of course, it never quite occurred to them that he actually is God. And so Jesus, as he says this to them, he's saying, I have this this baptism of fire coming. I've come here to kindle a fire. I've come here so that you will see that judgment is going to fall. You guys are thinking that somehow this is all going to work out good in the end. And of course it does in the end. Their problem is they think the end is them sitting on 12 thrones any day now. That isn't the end. That isn't how this is all going to come out. And so the wrath of God is going to be poured out. And Jesus is going to be there for it. In fact, he's going to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane, O Lord, if it's possible, let this cup of your wrath, this fire that's going to be coming, let it pass from me. Not as I will, though, but as you will. Remember the two disciples who want to sit on Jesus' right and on his left hand when he comes into his kingdom. Can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? And in a moment, we'll get to it. Can you be baptized with the baptism with which I'm going to be baptized? Oh, yeah. Sure, we can. Yeah, no. No, you will. I mean, it'll come your way, but you're not ready for it yet. When does Jesus come into his kingdom? Hanging on the cross. And if you want to be on his right hand and his left, well, ask the two guys who are on his right hand and on his left if anybody wanted to be there. No one wanted to be there. Jesus, when he is talking to them, it's because he knows what's coming. He sees what's coming. And so this idea that the wrath of God, there's, I've come to cast fire on the earth and how I wished it were already kindled. I want to get this over with. Let's get to the place where this is, this is done and over with. I, I'm, I haven't been looking forward to this at all the whole time. When he actually gets in the Garden of Gethsemane and, he, and it comes upon him, it will burst the capillaries in his skin. 
from the stress of knowing what's coming. Oh, that we could just get this fire done and over with. He says in verse 50, I have a baptism to undergo and how distressed I am until it's accomplished. Baptism is an interesting word. To be baptized is to be identified with. It's unfortunate that the mode of baptism became controversial. Do we immerse them? Do we sprinkle? Do we pour? What is the mode by which we do baptism? And it immediately became an issue early in church history. And the problem is that this is the Greek word, baptizo. And in case you hadn't noticed, they don't actually translate it. Okay, I'll give you a Greek word that you probably all know the meaning of, agape. Love, right? We all, okay. When you see love in your Bible, not always, but there, obviously, it's, we don't put, and he agaped them. We put, he loved them. Why? Because there's no controversy over what agape means. It means love. But when it came to the word baptism, instead of using the word immersion, instead of using the word that would best convey, well, because we were sprinkling and pouring, Immersion would be a word that is quite controversial. And so they chickened out. And instead of actually translating the word, they just stuck the Greek word in there. So we baptize. What what does baptism actually mean? What happens when you actually get baptized? In the society to which he spoke, and if you have paid attention, you know that what baptism is, is baptism is to totally immerse yourself, identify with, be a part of. So when Jesus went down and got baptized by John, one of the baptisms of Jesus, by the way, he got baptized a number of different times. The baptism of John was that Jesus was the Messiah. And so he completely identifies with the message of John. He goes down to John, who's in the Jordan River, and says, I must be baptized. And John, of course, is like, I know who you are, and you should be baptizing me. No, no, we must fulfill all prophecy. I must be completely identified with your message. I'm going to totally identify with you. That's what baptism is. I'm going to be immersed in your teaching, your message, who you are. And, of course, John is preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, that the Messiah is coming. And, of course, John will point to Jesus and say, behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is completely immersed and completely baptized into that. That's what baptism is. It's to be immersed in. When you get baptized here, what you're saying is, I completely agree with the message that the church teaches. Salvation is only through the blood of Christ. Salvation is not by my own good works. And when you're baptized, you're baptized into the water, into the death of Christ, out of the water, like the resurrection of Christ. It doesn't, Jesus doesn't become the Messiah when John baptizes him. Jesus is the Messiah. He just identifies with the message of John, which later we all know, right? He will say to the, when, when the, he's preaching in the temple complex, like, who gave you authority to come in here and preach? It's I tell you what. I got one question for you. You answer my question. I'll answer your question. 
Okay. The baptism of John, was it of God or of men? And they talked to one another. Well, if we say it's of God, then people are going to look at us and go, well, why didn't you get baptized by John? Because we sure didn't get baptized by John. We weren't going to repent of anything. If If we say it's of men, the people will stone us because everybody knows John was a prophet. We can't say. Jesus says, neither will I say. And the answer, of course, is that Jesus came in the same power and in the same authority, preaching the same message from God. If John was a prophet, Jesus was more than a prophet. And, of course, he was. So Jesus totally identifies with. That's what he's doing. He's identifying with the message of John. So John will preach, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I. And I'm not fit to untie his sandals, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. I have come to kindle a fire. I, you know, I, I can't wait for it to get going here. So this is why Jesus says, I have this baptism which I must undergo, and how distressed I am until I'm accomplished it. Well, what is it that Jesus is being baptized to? What is it that Jesus is completely identifying with? Sinners. Us. Jesus is becoming sin for us. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. The baptism of Jesus is his, at the cross, is his complete identification with us as sinners. Why do you think God turned his back? All the wrath of God for our sin is poured out on Jesus. He identifies with sinners. For that time on the cross, God treats him like a sinner. He identifies with us. He's baptized into the penalty of our sin. Praise God he was. Otherwise, none of us would get to heaven. He wasn't looking forward to that. He knew that was coming. He knew that was coming before he ever left heaven. This is what he had to do. He had to come down here and be completely immersed in our sin and pay the penalty for it. Paul writes to the Galatians and say, for all of you were baptized into Christ, so clothe yourself with Christ. Paul write to the church at Rome in chapter 6 and say, don't you know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him in baptism unto death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of God the Father, so too we also should walk in newness of life. Yes, we go down into the waters of baptism as sinners. We come out of the waters of baptism walking in newness of life. We're still sinners, by the way. We don't get rid of that until we get to heaven. But we put our old man to death under the water. And we come up in newness of life. Our old self was crucified with him. Crucify yourself daily. Crucify yourself to sin. 
What's happening on the cross is sin. Jesus is paying for our sin. He is becoming sin. He is identifying with sin. He is the Lamb of God for our sin. Which is why we should walk in newness of life. Which is why there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. God doesn't condemn us. He chastises us in love. He brings difficulties and hardships to us. But it's because he loves us. All the wrath that God had against us and our sin, he poured it all out on Jesus. Now, God may stand back and let us suffer the consequences of our sin. He may. He may step back and go, well, you know, if you're determined to plant sin, uh, you're going to reap what you sowed. You should think twice about sowing. But his wrath is not poured out on us. God is not mad at us. God's face towards us is not anger. All the anger that God had, he poured it out on Jesus. Now God loves us. There is no no condemnation. So we are driven to serve God from love. God pulls us with his grace, with his mercy, with his forgiveness. And that motivates and drives us to serve God. That doesn't motivate us with threats. God pulls us with his love, his grace, his compassion. So now to verse 51, do you suppose I came to grant peace on the earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. I am going to die on that cross and there is going to be, as I'm baptized into this baptism, as I kindle this fire, as I draw this line, you are going to, Force the world to stand on one side or the other. You are going to have to make up your mind about Jesus. And we, of course, our responsibility as believers, and what is it we believe? We believe that Jesus died for our sin. And so we become emissaries, ambassadors of righteousness, emissaries of the gospel of peace. Forgiveness is available. You can be justified before God through the blood of Christ. Not your own works, only through the works of Jesus. And this is a dividing line. We must make this line bright. Nobody's good works are going to get them to heaven. No one. In fact, the more you rely on your good works, the further from heaven you are. It is only when we renounce our good works, renounce our self-righteousness, come to God with humility, that's when salvation comes. When we trust what God has done instead of what we can do. This is a dividing line. Jesus didn't come to grant peace. Jesus came to draw a clear line. You either believe in his death on the cross or you don't. You believe he's coming back to judge the world in righteousness, or you don't. Which is last week's sermon that he, he just gave that as an introduction to this. Remember the good, the master goes away. He's got the four servants that he talks about. The good steward actually believes that Jesus is coming back. He's a believer. That, of course, should characterize us. He's one who takes his responsibility serious. He assumes that at any moment the master could return. And so he does what he can to serve the kingdom of God. 
He makes sure that his fellow servants are fed and taken care of. He carries out his responsibilities. The other three, well, the first one, he also is a steward, but instead of using his stewardship to take care of anybody, he uses it to exploit people and to just take care of himself. He doesn't care about anybody else. He uses his power and his authority and the resources available to him to just make sure he's well taken care of and he doesn't really care about anybody else. Okay, that guy is going to be, have a, a, he's going to be cut to pieces like a sacrifice and he's going to have a part with the unbelievers. The next guy, he doesn't necessarily go after anybody else and exploit all of them. He just takes care of himself without going after anybody else. He knows exactly what his master wants. He just doesn't do it. He'll still receive many stripes. And then there's the guy who wasn't really sure what his master wanted. Not sure. So, but he still does things worthy of many stripes. He will only receive few. Those folks are all unbelievers. The one guy who is a believer actually does his master's will. That's the message that we need to preach. That is the truth we need to speak. Jesus draws a dividing line. He is the truth. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. We need to speak into our society, which, by the way, the last thing they want to hear is truth. Speak it anyway. Clearly. Loudly. Say it. Before we can't say it anymore, before they arrest us for saying it, before they cancel us for saying it, say it with love, say it with compassion, say it with kindness and graciousness, but say it. Speak truth. Jesus said, I came to have division. From now on, five members in one household will be divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided father against son and son against father and mother against daughter and daughter against mother and mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Right down to the family unit, lines will be drawn as to who's with Jesus and who isn't. It's appropriate. It's proper. We don't have to be angry. We don't have to be upset. We don't have to be filled with wrath and malice and envy and and we don't have to do any of that stuff you can be as kind and compassionate and gracious and should be as you possibly can be speak the truth speak truth kindly and don't back down jesus expects us to do this he came to send division like oh that would be divisive Uh uh-huh yeah yeah and if you live in a society which by the way we are becoming more and more all the time in which speaking truth becomes divisive Speak it anyway. Let's pray. Lord, we need your wisdom. We need to know how to continue to walk in a way that is worthy of the truth. Lord, for most of our lives, we have lived in a world and in a society, particularly in this nation, where we could speak truth without consequence. We were able to stand up and to say the truths of your word. And there seemed to be no real consequences to it. We are now watching that begin to fade. May we have courage. May we have understanding. May passages like this morning 
where you make it very clear that you did not come to just send peace on the earth. You offer peace. You're the prince of peace, but the message does bring division. So, Lord, may we graciously, kindly, but with firmness and with love, stand and speak truth. Give us wisdom to know how to do that. May you use our lives to transform this world, we pray in your son's precious name. Amen.